Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm here. I'm very excited, as I always say, because I have a very special guest with me, um, Mr. George Bonner. And uh, many of you know uh, Bonner for many years in the research and different projects, but but now he's taken on a new chapter of his of his life. And and we were just talking about just looking at some of the musical instruments. He, you know, he's a bass player. He's you know, this is something I didn't even know about him until today. And and so he's you know, he's bringing sweet music not only from a cultural worldview, but also. Uh, as he as he provide great sounds. George, I want to welcome you to the show, my friend of Victorious Friday. Terrence, it's great to be with you. I appreciate you having me on. Well, it's a pleasure, my friend. Tell, tell the audience a little bit about you. Those who, who've been in a cave lately may not know much. Uh, just give them a little background on you, George, where you are, what you're doing, uh, just some of the passions of your life. Just kind of give an intro. Yeah, you know, I uh, was raised back on the East Coast, first got involved after graduating from college in politics. And uh, it was there that I had the opportunity to start using some of the skills I'd learned in terms of research, started doing polling for candidates, uh, managed political campaigns, worked in legislative policy, and went from there back to grad school, got a few degrees in the whole research area, moved out from the East Coast to the West Coast, began working in the marketing research industry, predominantly in media research, wound up going into some work for Christian ministries. And that led to me starting the Barna Research Group back in 1984, the purpose of which was to try to provide something that didn't exist at the time, which was current, accurate, reliable, bite-sized bits of market intelligence so that ministries actually understood the audience and the world in which they were trying to minister and could make better decisions. That was the whole point, make better strategic decisions. And so we started that back in 84, sold that company in uh, 2009 after about 25 years, and then have been working independently since then. The Barnard Group still doing research, but uh, I've been doing other kinds of projects, a lot of political work, but primarily focused on faith and culture, the intersection thereof, and particularly the area of worldview. Now, I'm a professor at Arizona Christian University. We started the Cultural Research Center there, and our focus is trying, again, to help ministries understand the lay of the land, understand kind of the seven mountains of cultural influence, seven dimensions, and to know what's going on in those and what we as individuals or organizations such as Victoria's Family can be doing to help move Christians to positions of greater influence and impact. Absolutely. Well, the Barner research that you provided over your lifetime and uh, over the last few decades, for sure, has certainly impacted not only uh, families, but churches and so many institutions around the world uh, who knows of the work that you've done. But George, I, I want to get in because today's topic, I feel, is very important. Today, we're going to talk about culture and the impact of culture and what's happening here, not only in the U.S., but around the world. Um, if I look at culture, just to kind of set this up, as I look back on the last 50, 60 years even, when I look at generations, builder generation, boomer generation, Gen X, Gen Y, whichever one, you, and then millennials, if whatever way you want to describe it, we've seen a, a significant shift in cultural, what I call biblical worldview. 
And, and so I want to jump into some of that discussion, but also more importantly, the, the shift in our culture from a worldview and, and the way we look at. And so I'd, I'd like to start out because I think it's important as it sets the foundation for parents around this country and around this world as to what is our worldview, what, what, what's the lens, how do we see ourselves, how do we see, in this case, God the Father, and how do we see each other and, and the roles that we play, but there's a bigger, deeper picture that I want to get into, and so maybe just start out just simply, what is a worldview? Yeah, it's something that most people don't really think much about. What we know is that everybody has a worldview, you need to have a worldview to get through the day because your worldview is the intellectual, emotional, and spiritual filter through which you gather and interpret information and experiences and decide how you want to respond, what kind of person you want to be known as and seen as, and what kind of impact and influence you want to have. And so in order to get through the day, you have to make literally thousands of decisions. And it's the worldview that directs every single one of those decisions. Therefore, a person's worldview begins developing somewhere between 15 to 18 months of age wow. and is almost fully formed by the age of 13. During our teens and 20s, we refine it. But after that, it's not going to change much unless there's some kind of supernatural intervention, the Holy Spirit coming in and radically changing a person's heart, mind, and soul. That does happen, but it's the aberration in America. So really, it's that that period of maybe age one to about age 13 that's critical in the shaping and development of that worldview that's going to determine who you are as a person. And your worldview is comprised not just of beliefs. That's a mistake that a lot of people make. They think, oh, it's just what I believe. Actually, it's also your behaviors. I have this expression, you do what you believe. And, and so if in research, you tell me you believe something, but then I study your behavior and I see, but you're doing the opposite or you're not following through on what you believe. My contention is you don't really believe it because if you did, you do it. And, and so it really is the combination, the interaction of your beliefs, influencing your behavior. And that in turn defines who you are and the kind of influence that you're gonna have in the world. Absolutely, George. I, I'm, when I when I look at this kind of this this thread of belief, behavior, commitment, and I go one step further and talk about a conviction. And there's a difference between my belief and my conviction and how I live out my life. And it certainly is shaped around worldview and so many other things. What, what shapes our worldview in that period of one to 13 years of age is, of course, is life experience and things like, but I want to hear from you, the expert. What, what kind of sh could shape those, that worldview over that period of time? And why is that period of time uh, so, in, so important in terms of worldview? Well, believe it or not, the most influential entity in shaping a person's worldview is the media and information, media information they're exposed to. And so it's really about the television programs, the music, the video games, all of those kinds of things that are media that children are exposed to, uh, you know, movies, books, etc. All of that conveys a message about how the world works and what's appropriate within the contours of that world. Mm -hmm. Now, while that's the most influential entity, 
also highly influential are parents because they're the most trusted individuals in the child's life. And so they're still taking a lot of cues from their parents about right and wrong, good and bad, uh, what's meaningful and meaningless. So all of that, the parents have a huge role in shaping. We found also that another element is the law. Oddly enough, I mean, we don't think about that very much as being something that shapes worldview. But again, what are we doing when we're young? We're trying to figure out what's okay. And so the law tells us what's good or what's bad. In fact, you get punished for doing what's wrong and you get rewarded for doing what's right, whether it's with more freedom or tax breaks or whatever it may be, some things kids wouldn't understand. But nevertheless, the law goes a long way toward helping to shape our understanding of how the world works and who we want to be, who we should be, who we could be. We also found that peers have a significant influence on young people. The conversations that they're having with their friends, watching their friends do things and, and figuring out, was that accepted? Did it look like it made a positive or negative difference? All of those kinds of things are important. So those were the primary shapers. Some people who are watching us today might say, hmm, he forgot about the church. And I didn't. What I discovered in our research is that actually churches have very little influence on the worldview of Americans. I'm not saying that's the way it should be. Don't shoot the messenger here. But we're finding through the research that that's what's happening, is that churches have become very good at conveying great volumes of information. But because they haven't been as effective at helping us to know what to do with that information, how it gets translated into a lifestyle, into values, into customs and routines, into beliefs and behavior, rather just dumping information on people, say, you figured out, hasn't been working very well. And that's especially true with children. But Joyce, that, that is so powerful. And uh, you mentioned the church and, and the influence and even less influence that it's having today as it's more informational. Um, I like to go to this, what's, what's a Christian worldview and how does that differ from a worldview or is that the same? Should we be well, thinking no, about that, the same? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there are probably about a dozen different worldviews that are popular in the United States and people pick and choose from all these different worldviews and they put together a customized worldview. Okay. Now we might label it one thing or another but really, when we start talking about a biblical worldview, and Terrence, forgive me, but I encourage people not to talk about a Christian worldview, because in America, what's happened is the word Christian has become very generic. It covers such a broad span of ideas and perceptions and beliefs, many of which are not biblical. And I would suggest that if you want to become Christ-like, if that's part of what the goal is here, then you've really got to be working with his word. You need a biblical worldview, one that really confirms and, and works alongside of all the core principles and truths and commands that the Bible gives to us. So a biblical worldview is one of those options of worldviews that you can choose from. And basically what it does is it goes through and it tries to figure out the various life principles that God has given to us for our own good, to help us lead the most meaningful, significant, and God-honoring life that we can. 
that's what he wants for us because he knows it's best for us and of course it brings him glory which is our purpose here on earth and by the way you wouldn't know that unless you had a biblical worldview so these are the kinds of things that a biblical worldview starts to get at what's what's your purpose in life what gives meaning to life how do you know right from wrong what do you believe about god is there uh, something after this life if it is how do we know what it is how do we make the most of it all of these kinds of things and more then have implications for the kinds of actions that we take from moment to moment and so shaping that worldview in our mind our heart and our soul is the thing that enables us to become more Christ-like. That's what a biblical worldview's goal is, is to enable us to think like Jesus so that we can live like Jesus. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, that as I was thinking through the next, is truth is relevant, it isn't. Uh, <laughs> in, in America, yeah, I mean, we've got two out of three people who yeah. say there's no such thing as absolute moral truths. Mm -hmm. It's all relative to the individual and his or her circumstances. And, and God would argue differently. You know, he would say, mm, exactly. not true. I gave you my word. And that lays out the absolute truths that you need to know. And, you know, you mentioned this idea of biblical worldview versus maybe using the word Christian worldview. And when we look at biblical worldview, why aren't, uh, I'm going to use the word Christian here. Why, aren't, why are so many Christians not having a consistent biblical worldview? Although we say we're reading the same truth we're reading the same text no i you know I'd, I'd love to get your your thoughts on that yeah and in in my research what i found is that it's not something that's really been laid before most of us to even think about mm. what what we do is we go to church we listen to somebody teach us for you know 30 to 60 minutes depending on the church you know we take notes and we go home and we we've got bits of information stored in our minds but the key to a biblical worldview is figuring out how do you integrate that information into a lifestyle? So it's really a conversion process. And frankly, our research has shown that churches are not very effective at that. We're good at, at telling people, you know, here's what the Greek teaches. Here's what the context of this story was. Here are the key players. Here's what they did. Here are the principles we can glean from that. But what we tend not to do, Terrence, at the end of a sermon is to answer the most important question of all for that sermon, which is, so what? So what? Okay. I mean, that's your information. I can go watch a movie and find out what the character in the movie thought and did. So what? You know, so if my goal in life, and, and let me tell you that, you know, the purpose that we have in life is to know and to love and to serve God with all our heart and mind and strength and soul. I mean, this is straight from Jesus' mouth. I'm not making this up. So if we know that, then we've got to be looking at every bit of information, every experience, every relationship, every opportunity that we have to extract or to exude influence as an opportunity to take God's principles and make them real in our life. That's what a biblical worldview helps us to do. What we do in churches is it's like, uh, you know, those uh, paint by number kinds of things and and we give people the sheet with all the numbers on it or, or all the the points on it but there are no numbers next to the points and so people don't know what numbers get connected to what we've given them all the data points but we didn't identify what they are and how they fit together and so people are draw, drawing some pretty wild stuff because there's no guidance 
you know, without a vision, God's people run wild, you know, right out of Proverbs. And that's kind of what happens in America. We give people all kinds of information and visions and opportunities, but we don't help them connect it to their purpose in life, their calling in life, their gifting to pursue that calling. All that is critically important. That's so good, George. You know, here at Victoria's family, we think that that starts in the home. And it's got to be home, what we call home-centered, and whether it be church-supported, if you want to put it that way, but the church obviously is, is important to play a role, whether it's playing that role is a different discussion. But, but to start in the home, but yet we find from your research or from research that 65% of parents feel totally inadequate uh, in this area to even share what that biblical worldview is, what they truly believe. Uh, as we used to say in the Truth Project, do you really believe what you say you believe is really real? But yet we don't even know what's real with less than 10% of Christians reading their Bible and, and so forth. So, so here we are saying parents, and I'm an optimist by trade. I, I want to think that we all want to do the right thing. We just don't know how, right? So, yeah. so this episode, what I'm hoping is that we can help them to figure out the how. We can take them down a road. Now we've just... You know, we've we've talked about worldview and how significant it is and how it's important to shape that worldview at an early age. What are some of the things that parents can do that we all can do to begin to shape worldview of that next generation? Well, Terrence, you know, I, I'd say the first thing that's important is that as a parent, you have to be very intentional about it. Your child is not going to get a biblical worldview. You're not going to get a biblical worldview unless you intentionally pursue it. Because if you allow the world to shape your worldview, which is what happens with most Americans, it's worldview by default. We don't even think about it. And so we embrace a lot of unrighteous, ungodly, unbiblical stuff. And we assume that because perhaps we love Jesus, it's okay. You know, he'll forgive us. That's not the way to, to run the operation here. The idea is we want to be Christ-like. And so we got to think about, well, what did Jesus do? Well, number one, Jesus was very intentional about the decisions that he made. He prayed before he made decisions. He read the scriptures of his day. He had, you know, the, the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the Old Testament, as we know, it. you know, and, and he knew those scriptures. He went to the synagogue to study with the teachers there, the rabbis there, to understand the principles. And he understood that his actions become a model for other people to follow. So as a parent, you've always got to be thinking, all right, have I really decided that I'm going to intentionally try to raise a spiritual champion? If I am, what does that mean? So you've got to start identifying what kind of outcomes do I want to see produced here? You know, when Jesus talked about discipleship in the book of John, he, he was followed by, you know, these 12 raging idiots, you know, who, who meant well, had no clue what they were doing, where they were going, who Jesus really was. And so he was trying to teach them. And he talked three times about, you will be my disciples if, and, you know, he said, you'll be my disciples if you obey the things that I teach, you'll be my disciples if you love other people, and you'll be my disciples if you produce much spiritual fruit. So as a parent, if you were to start there and say, you know what, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. 
I've got to do that in my life. And then I've got to figure out how do I teach my child to do that as well. That's going to go a long way because you are the most significant role model in their life. Now, part of that modeling is going to be, they're going to be watching your spiritual journey. I wrote a book a bunch of years ago called, uh, well, not that long ago, but called Maximum Faith, where I, I, it was the most extensive research project I've ever done, trying to figure out what does a person's spiritual journey look like and how does God transform lives? And one of the things I discovered is that we're all basically on the same journey. There are about 10 stops on that journey. God doesn't push you any farther than you want to go. Free will, it's your choice. But if you want to grow and you want to become Christ-like, you can do it. But there are certain stops on the journey you're going to have to master. And one of those is the stop of brokenness. This is what I discovered is keeping most people from really being Christ-like. We're not willing to be broken. I mean, truly broken of sin. We're not willing to be broken of self. We're not willing to be broken of taking our cues from society, being loved and appreciated by society, accepted by society. We've got to understand that we're just passing through here. We're part of the kingdom of God. And so what we really have to be looking at is how do I do the things that reflect the life of Christ? Once we're broken, then we can truly surrender our life to, to God. We can submit to his agenda, give up our agenda, fully run toward him and toward the things that he wants. And ultimately, then we can be people who are obedient and loving and producing spiritual fruit. You know, and, and one of the ways of getting there, I found one of the key things out of that research is that people tend to grow the most spiritually by finding a mentor. One individual who is, or maybe multiple individuals, but at least one who is more spiritually mature, who's farther down the line on that journey toward wholeness and holiness, and is willing to invest in your life. That's a big deal because you not only get to learn from their growth experiences, but you have someone who's not going to judge you, but will be helping you to remain accountable on this journey to wholeness. You know, George, I, I agree. I, I just consider that as discipleship, right? We're, we're, we need to make disciples who go and make disciples. And the way I define discipleship, because it's defined in so many ways, these these see is uh, it's one in imparting their life into another's life. And that's really what you just described. And, and as followers, we're called to do that. You know, George, I'm going to I'm going to turn just a little bit. Um, and, and that was just great wisdom. And, and uh, I want to get the name of that book again that you mentioned. Will you say that title of the yeah. book one more? Maximum Faith. Maximum Faith. Parents, I want to recommend that you go out and take a look at that and pick it up, order it. I'm sure it's on Amazon or whatever book places there are. Uh, but but please get a copy. Uh, George, here's where I want to go. You are now uh, training the next generation, um, uh, you know, on, on the university. And so tell me about that. Uh, uh, many folks are talking about, uh, boy, that generation is lost. It's over. You know, it's just never going to come back. I'm an optimist. I, I think it, it's a powerful generation. I think I'm, I'm seeing positive things from that generation although they're the fruit that we produce, you know, so we, we can't complain about them, we produce them. But, um, uh, but I'm optimistic about the next generations and um, from millennial to Gen Z and so forth. And, 
But I want to get your perspective because you're mainly working with Gen Zs right now uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, what are you seeing? What are you optimistic about this next generation? Uh, where do you see them in this whole idea of worldview? Well, you know, Terrence, as, as we've been measuring it every year, we do something called the American Worldview Inventory. It's a big nationwide survey where we assess how many people have a biblical worldview. And currently, we're at about 6% of adults in America having a biblical worldview. Mm -hmm. But we find that as you look at it from generation to generation, the number is declining. So you look at the builder generation, 9% have a biblical worldview. Boomers, 8%. Gen X, 5%. Millennials, uh, 4%. Uh, the, the digitals, Gen Z, whatever you want to call them, 2%. So we're rapidly losing ground. And again, I think a lot of it's attributed to the fact that we aren't really even paying attention to this. And so we've got to be intentional. We've got to be strategic. We've got to be committed and consistent. I'll tell you, in, in one of the big studies on parenting that I had done, where we looked at young people who grew up to be spiritual champions, we interviewed them about what they thought their parents had done to raise them to become that. And then we asked them for permission to, to talk to their parents and then connect us to their parents if they were alive and, and talk to the parents about what they thought they had done. And then we compared the two perspectives. And, and what we found, what, we found a lot that, that came out in a book called Revolutionary Parenting. But one of the key things that we found there was that both groups said that they felt the single most important thing they had done was to be consistent over a long period of time. And so for parents, you know, if, if, if you didn't get on board at first and you got to shift horses midstream and, and, and finally get to it, that's fine, that's good. But the best thing you can do is start when they're 15 months of age and be completely consistent in terms of your message, your lifestyle, your admonitions to the kids about what kind of person they should become, what kind of life they should leave, what lead, what kind of relationship they should have with God, uh, what they should think about and how they should interact with the scriptures. All of that needs to be consistent over time, modeled by you, taught to them. And so that, that that's a really critical thing there. Am I encouraged about the younger generations? I'm encouraged in the sense that what we're seeing is that they recognize the world is confused. Mm -hmm. They know that they need to find answers that they don't have. But the sad reality about worldview is that because you need it to make decisions just to get through every day, by the time you get to college, you already got your worldview set in place. Mm -hmm. One of the pieces of research I did actually several confirmed it is that uh, most people in America die believing what they die what they believed at age 13. So there's typically not much change that takes place unless it's very intentional. And so a place like Arizona Christian University, our first and foremost obligation is to train people to have a biblical worldview. Everything that we do, every class that's taught, every professor that's hired, every textbook that, that we allow students to read, I mean, it's all about worldview. Uh, so you know, I would say parents have that same kind of obligation. With this younger generation, the media that they're exposed to, I can't encourage you enough to take control of it. 
when your kids control their media, they're not going to wind up with a biblical worldview. And so what I'd suggest to you is that, you know, I talk about the four M's of media. You've got to minimize the amount of media that they're exposed to, because we know that by the age of 18, the typical American kid will have been exposed to roughly 32,000 hours of media content. There's nothing else they do in their life that competes with that. So you've got to minimize that. You've got to monitor what it is that they're being exposed to. You've got to mediate it, meaning that you have to then explain to them what's right and what's wrong about what they're being exposed to. And then you've got to moralize it. You've got to help them convert these things that they're getting into appropriate morals and values so that the lifestyle that they exude is not one that's been shaped by the media, but it's been shaped by you, their parents. Oh man, that's so good, the four Ms. Oh, I love it, uh, George. I mean, one of the things we, we talk about at Victoria's family is we, we're trying to encourage parents to be intentional. And we believe they, it, it starts with them. And, um, you know, I, I think about growing up, I think about my father and, I, and my mother and what they modeled and, and how they were intentional in, bring, in, in making sure we understood certain values and certain beliefs. And and, and it, it was just a way they did parenting at that time. It, I still remember some of those things, uh, even going through the 60s and mom encouraging me to love more than they hate. And, and then I'm just thinking of my father and his work at, attitude that everyone has, uh, he called it eccentric value, which was wrong, it was intrinsic value. But for, for 20 years, I called it eccentric because my father did. <laughs> and so, and so uh, I had to figure out what he was really saying was intrinsic value. Everyone has intrinsic value. You just got to find it. But, but for 20 years or more, I would say it eccentric. But anyway, uh, but I still remember him and his work ethic and, his, and what he shared about it as one of the first African-Americans to, to hold a, a very significant position in, in a company he worked for for 43 years. And that's still instilled in us, uh, still lived out today and, and how passionate we, we were. He said, you know, Terrence, it's not, uh, I'm not going to encourage you to go find a job or go, go work for dollars. What I want you to challenge you with is your generation can be different than mine. And you can actually have an impact on the culture of society. Well, I was eight years old. I was just stupid enough to, to, to think I really could. <laughs> but, but, well, praise uh, God. Yeah. Praise God, right? But that's, that's what kind of got me motivated. I never went for a position or job or money. It was always, could I have an impact on the culture? And he felt uh, it was because he was a businessman. He felt that the business, the marketplace, uh, which has a high level of influence, could, could make a difference. And, and so that's where I kind of lived out my early career it was in the marketplace and, and still have a passion uh, from starting my first business at six years old. But now as I'm focusing, and, and this has to be a God thing, because this is no way I would have written in, this into the script uh, along the journey. He's saying, well, parents, let's, br let's bring these principles back to the home and let's be intentional. I, I believe that every Christian, every family, but every Christian family especially should have a written spiritual family plan to be intentional and in, in training and instructing their kids in the Lord. I don't care what it looks like, but but if you write it down, it gets done. And if you don't write it down, but the other side is less than 1% of Christians have such a plan. We, we might have it up here, 
but we haven't written it down. It's not intentional and, and we just forget about it and we, it kind of goes wherever the waves go. So I'm, I'm really, um, I really was looking forward to today's conversation around worldview and intentionality and those words that you're mentioning. I'd like for you to share with us, George, as you think about it and your research and, and this research you've done on parenting and worldview and, and all family and worldview and so forth. Talk to the young parent today, millennial, maybe two young kids growing up in certainly what I would call a postmodern society. You may have a different description. I want to hear it if you do. Um, and, and like you say, media barrage, they may not even be listening to mainline media in terms like we were back then. It was only three stations, ABC, NBC, CBS. We didn't have too many choices. <laughs> but, but today they've got, you know, a bunch of choices and half of them, you know, who knows where, where, where they come from. Uh, so they've got this so-called media speaking into their life every day. It's a different world out there in the education uh, mountain. It's a different world in the government. So I look at all the different mountains and cultural shifts, and yet we're the razor generation that looks like Jesus, that, that operates, that lives like Jesus um, from a biblical standpoint. Man, what can you share with a young parent or parents who's in that situation, feeling probably hopeless or just feeling like, man, I don't know what to do and they're challenged by it, what are some, some simple steps that they can take to help in terms of this idea of worldview and helping their kids navigate through that? Well, you know, there, there are a number of things. One of those is let's start out by addressing some of the core elements of having a biblical worldview. So one of the ones that, that I often ask people about is what do you think success looks like in your life? What is success? And what I normally find when I'm talking to, to Christians, people who love Jesus, is they'll talk about, oh, well, you know, to, to live in a safe neighborhood, to have a, uh, a career path where I'm accelerating toward the top, you know, and I, I get to have that kind of influence. Uh, you know, to have enough money saved up so that I can live comfortably and securely and send my kids to a good college, all of that stuff. So, that's great. But that's what America may think success is. What the Bible teaches us success is, is consistent obedience to God. And so if you start there, you know, along with what I mentioned before about the purpose of life is to know and to love and to serve God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul, okay, and success is consistent obedience as I'm doing that, then this puts you in a whole different frame of mind about what do you have to do? You know, you don't have to beat yourself silly in the rat race. You don't have to worry about outdoing your neighbors. You don't have to worry about a whole lot of stuff. As Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, what should we be worrying about? Not a whole heck of a lot. Just are you living for God? And so then start thinking about, okay, why do I have children? Well, when you have them, understand that God says you're responsible for them not the schools, not the government, not your neighbors, not your community. You know, the community may have some role in raising them, but you need to be in control of the role that they're having in the raising of them, if you're even going to allow that. 
you are the one responsible. So now you got to be thinking about, okay, the Bible indicates to me, you go back to Deuteronomy 6 and other passages in the book of Deuteronomy about family, that is your single most important task in your entire life. You know, we're made to be in relationship with God. And so how you prepare your children to have a lifelong relationship with God, to know him, to love him, to serve him with all their heart, mind, strength, and soul, everything that you're doing ought to be pointing in that direction, ought to be preparing them for the day when they're cut loose and now it's them and God, you know, and you're not shaping that any longer, but you've done your job of preparing them for that moment of release. And so that means you do have to control the media. I'd encourage you to have a media diet, you know, slim down on, on how much media intake you got going on there. There's usually too much of that. How much time are you spending together reading God's word, talking about God's word, praying over that word, talking about how it's being applied in your lives? That's really where the rubber meets the road. You want to be a good parent? The more time you spend talking with your kids about scriptural principles, what they mean, what they look like, how your kids are applying them, and rewarding them, encouraging them, celebrating them when they do a good job. That means so much to kids when their parents are celebrating what they're doing. What you ought to be celebrating isn't so much the home run in the last inning. That's a great thing. I mean, I, I love playing baseball, but you know, that pales in comparison to knowing that I'm doing things that bring pleasure to my father in heaven. And so, again, having that right perspective about what really matters in life, that's our job as parents, is to be helping our kids know it, see it, live it out, be encouraged when they do live it out, and be guided differently when they don't. That, too, is part of our responsibility as parents, is, you know, to, to be given that kind of impact. And I'd encourage you as parents to not only be thinking about what is the vision, the calling, and the gifting that God's given you for your life, but what is the vision, the calling, and the gifting that it seems like God may have prepared for your children, and then to be moving them in those directions so that they're doing what God placed them on earth to do. There's no greater joy in life than when you get to spend your time, your energy, all of your resources investing in the things that God made you to do. I mean, that, that just gives you such a, a sense of not only being in his presence, but being able to bring the God of all creation pleasure. Are you kidding me? How, how special is that? So setting up your kids for success in that manner, critical. But as a family, spend time together, worshiping God, praying to him for, for direction, uh, studying his words so that you know what the guidelines are, the principles, the opportunities, how to assess what's going on in, in your environment. All of those things are critical. The world is not going to encourage your kids to do it. You need to take the role of guiding them in all of that. Joe, sure, I think that's it. And um, I need to take you on the road with me. Um, <laughs> I'll help you open up with the worship with the, you know, you can do the bass thing. You know, there you go. 
Yeah. And I knew you were, I knew you were pretty good, especially when you mentioned baseball. You know, I, I grew up playing <laughs> baseball. I was a pitcher. So I, I knew something was good about you. You know, you, you know baseball story. We're going to get some stories when we get together there you go. next. And, now we're and talking. Dinner. Hey, I want to give you the last word, maybe take a minute or two. Uh, and you can go anywhere with this last word, whatever's on your heart. Uh, but just share whatever on your heart to encourage or just update us. Uh, uh, but I'd like to give you the last word and wherever you'd like to go. All right. Well, thanks. You know, I guess the thing that strikes me is when I look at what's going on in America, you know, what I do is research on the culture, trying to consistently figure out what's going on in all the different dimensions of culture. And what can those of us who love God, who have a, a, an eternal relationship with him through Jesus Christ, and who want to use everything that we've got to serve him, to bring about his kingdom here on earth. What do we need to know? We need to know that America is in a mess right now. And it's a mess because people are not paying attention to the principles and the things of God. If you love God, this is your opportunity. You know, with Esther born for such a time as this, you are the Esther of today. You were born for such a time as this. And we've got to see this as our moment of opportunity to lead America to the best place it could be, not to feel overwhelmed by political forces, not to feel like we don't have enough personal resources to make a difference. God tells us, you've got me. I'm in your corner. I'm in you. My Holy Spirit lives within you and wants to guide you every moment of every day. Will you let me do that? If we let him do that, we are the remnant that can reshape this culture today. You read through the scriptures, historically what you see is that God has changed many, many, many cultures, but he never waited in any of those instances until he had a majority to get the job done. In every single case, he found a small segment of people from that larger population who lived for him, who loved him, who would take their lead from him. And in their mind and their heart, the only thing that success was, was being obedient to who he'd made them to be and what he called them to do and to make it happen for his glory. And so you and I are part of that remnant today. If we don't do it, who will? If it's not done now, when is it going to be done? This is our time. And so to sit back and say, oh, we lost an election. Oh, we don't run the big institutions. Oh, the technology companies are against us. Yeah, but we've got God in our corner. Nothing, nothing defeats God. We're on his team. We're the people he put here now to get the job done. And so I'd ask you to get on your knees, pray to God about what is he calling you to do in this battle for the hearts and souls of American people today. They are drifting. They feel hopeless. They're pessimistic. They don't know where to turn. We've got the answers. We're living it, but we've got to share it. And so I pray that you're willing to do that now. Not, not five years from now, not 10 years from now, now. Now is when people need Jesus and you can bring it to them. Start with your kids and work out from there. George, I think that, that that's a great last word. Um, Victorious Friday, uh, audience, I wanna encourage you. I mean, the one thing we know is he's sovereign. 
and he's in control and he's a God of love. And, uh, but he's also a God of wrath and we forget that sometime, but, but that wrath comes out of the love and the discipline is, is love. And George, I'm encouraged today from our conversation. Uh, now, every two weeks or so, you're releasing uh, new information and new content I think people should be aware of. Can you quickly share, where can they find that? Yeah, uh, at Arizona Christian University, we have this thing called the Cultural Research Center. So we're okay. consistently doing big nationwide surveys, trying to understand the lay of the land. I write it up into, hopefully it's bite-sized pieces, you know, a couple of pages, just summarizing what we're finding in the research. So every two weeks, you can go to culturalresearchcenter.com okay. and you can sign up to get uh, notification that these things are available and uh, read them, share them, grow from them, I hope. If you have questions, get in contact with us. We're all in this together. We can turn it around. And then finally, I understand you have a new book coming out. Um, uh, Worldview, what is this? Uh, Worldview uh, Development. Tell me what that new book is and when is it coming out? Yeah, I'd love to tell you the name of it. We don't have the name yet. You don't know yet. Book, okay. but, but it'll be coming so out. So it's in, it's, in, it's in draft. It's in yes, uh, editing or whatever. Working so we'll it. see that hopefully sometime by the end of the year, I'm assuming, or maybe sooner. Yeah, before summer, we're hoping that okay. it will be out. Well, maybe uh, we can make a date that you come back on and uh, talk to us about that when it launches. I'm putting you on the spot so you can't, you know, can't say no. <laughs> but, uh, hey, I look forward to it. Thank you so much, my friend. God bless. And um, uh, just, keep, just keep the focus, as one person tells me, a strong love for Jesus. There you Continue go. Thank you, Terrence. Great to Take be care, with. my friend. Yep, you too.